Welcome to the True Health Revealed podcast brought to you by the True Health Initiative. I am Dr. Tom Rafai, CEO of FlexMD and Lifestyle Medicine, Internal Medicine Specialist. I have my award-winning co-host with us, Kathleen Zellman. Hey, hey. And All right. Hey, hey. And we bring <laughs> to you today, I think this is for the first time ever at least recorded, a conversation with both Dr. Frank Sachs, Professor of Cardiovascular Disease Prevention Nutrition at Harvard, and Dr. Larry Apple, a Professor of Medicine and Director of the Welch Center for Prevention and Epidemiology at Johns Hopkins. What an honor to bring the originators of the DASH, the Dietary Approaches to Stop Hypertension Eating Plan, to True Health Revealed. Thank you both, Dr. Sachs and Apple. Rock stars. Absolutely. On the podcast. <laughs> now, for everyone's uh, uh, information, unless you know you might have been living under a rock, uh, the U.S. News and, and World Report, well, every year comes out with their assessment and their expert committee's assessment of the best eating plans. And again, uh, DASH comes out in that top three, along with Mediterranean and Flexitarian, uh, dietary approaches to stop hypertension, winning uh, high marks across, too, not just overall, but in terms of heart health and and so on. It is a very, very practical eating plan, but the origins of it, we'd love to discuss with the originators today and then some uh, cool studies that have been done over the years to individualize it and and bring it from its origins as maybe some people might call it a high-carb approach. I would say clean carbs, but uh, tweaking it for a little uh, less carbs and a little more fat, a little uh, less carbs, a little more protein, and then some questions regarding glycemic index. But let's just start off with uh, first and foremost, uh, the origins uh, of the the da- just the, even the thought of why why dash why was dash and and maybe a little bit about where the sodium part came in because it wasn't from the beginning. Uh, just a, a nice summary of the the origins of the dash trials. Either one of you can go first. Um, I can I can start and then Frank can certainly chime in. So. Um, I think there are really two streams of, of evidence that were seminal in terms of uh, the start of the trial or the justification for the trial. One was evidence that vegetarians had lower blood pressure, and Frank had a, had a major role in documenting that type of evidence. Uh, um, vegetarians, uh, and there were, I think, Frank, you, you studied different forms of vegetarian diets, and they were associated with lower blood pressure. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then there's a second stream, which is epidemiologic evidence on individual nutrients that was, I guess, stimulating, but not consistent. And it causes a lot of people to scratch their head. Is calcium or magnesium really important in terms of, you know, blood pressure? Jerry Stamler uh, was particularly interested in protein and um and so there was just a bunch of studies, and, uh, and well, including omega-3 polyunsaturated fatty acids. And so there was a RFA request for applications that Frank and I and others applied to. We were fortunate to get it. And we designed the studies based on what we knew from those two lines of research. And, and Frank actually led the design subcommittee for the trial. So he, Probably, I'm sure has more insights than I do about this. All right, good base. And then Frank, uh, what uh, what about that original design? Any comments regarding the vegetarian kind of inspiration, and then the the micronutrient questions? Yeah, I mean that's it. I agree with everything Larry said. Of course, I mean there's some puzzling science in diet and blood pressure that you know what around the world it was pretty clear that uh, groups of people, sometimes countries in which uh, 
where vegetarian diets uh, were were eaten. I mean, and this, these aren't vegetarian diets that are that are done to be vegetarian for the most part. I mean, for the most part, it's you know, people living in subsistence economies and traditional, and they don't have huge access to meat, and so they're eating vegetarian partly out of just what's around necessity. If you don't mind, who are some of the uh, vegetarian populations you're talking about? One kind of uh, concrete example our audience could wrap their heads around. Sure. Well, I mean, in Africa, in uh, Southeast Asia, okay, the South American, the Amazon. So, see, there are many examples of societies eating traditional foods, traditional diets, and uh, having low blood pressure. And then when they move or their diet changes, they move to a more of an industrialized situation, but their blood pressure goes up. They get heart attacks and they get strokes. That's a problem. So we've, that's a problem. So the uh, National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, well, they have scientists that were interested in this. So they, they kind of put out a call, like Larry said, for everybody's best ideas, for trying to you know, have sort of a new look at diet and blood pressure because we thought there was a lot to discover. And that's actually what happened. Larry and I and um, a group at Duke and also a group in the, the Pennington Center in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and also uh, our data center in Oregon, we got together in a room and we figured out like what we, wanted, what we felt was most likely able to really make an advance, lower blood pressure, but not really test a vegetarian diet, but use that as an inspiration because we wanted to to design a diet that would not only was effective, but that people would enjoy and would have an impact nationwide, worldwide. And can I ask, Frank, when you talk about vegetarians, what type of vegetarians? Is it more vegan, all plant, or was it lacto-ovo, or it was any kind of um, particular group that you found had these findings? Yeah, well, the vegan, the more vegan, the lower the blood pressure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, yeah, it, the, the greater the adherence to a strict vegetarian diet, the, the lower the blood pressure. And some of these were like, well, uh, not hunter-gatherer necessarily, but forager, horticulturalists. Uh, you mentioned Amazon and uh, like the Chimane, I imagine, in Bolivia or in, the, or in Africa, uh, maybe more along the lines of, you know, hunter-gatherer, if you will. So very traditional. When you're saying traditional, you mean we're talking about uh, particularly traditional, uh, maybe in terms of the Asian traditional. Uh, what what uh, what would would these also be more rural uh, farmer type of eating patterns? What um, ra- let us wrap our our heads around that a little bit, maybe? Yeah, Frank. You know, some of the work you did in Boston, I think, is is, is relevant as well as some of the findings in um, Seventh Day Adventist as well. So it's not just these isolated populations that uh, were were consuming vegetarian diets. I, this is not my necess- This is not really my, my my focus of my my research, so I can't really comment much more. But it it, it was a it was a spectrum of. Uh, vegetarian diets and, and not just those in isolated populations uh, who were eating out of necessity. So even including, for instance, the blue zone type of uh, population in, in the Seventh-day Adventists of, uh, well, maybe the United States, but in, in California where they're kind of highlighted as a, a blue zone, if you will. 
Right. And and then Okinawa too. But I mean, those, yeah. those were not the studies that were, were cited, um, you know, providing the justification. I mean, the, there were actually two trials, uh, one in non-hypertensives and the other in hypertensives, I think. And Marguess, I think, was one of the uh, lead authors on those and of the, of the papers. And um, those were actually, you know, uh, the first experimental studies on, on vegetarian-style diets uh, uh, potentially could, could pull up the, you know, the actual uh, type of diet that was used but, or, or, or studied uh, in those trials. But both, both were provided convincing evidence that, that it's not just confounding um, because there are many, many issues uh, right. or aspects of beyond diet that, that um, uh, these isolated populations have. So uh, that was sort of an important set of studies that justified uh, DASH. But they could also, I could also say that when we um, were asked to design the studies, we were explicitly told not to make, a, make the studies vegetarian and um, uh, style diets. Uh, in part because they wanted to make it applicable to the general population, which for the mo which clearly is not vegetarian. Um, so uh, that was sort of a one of the sort of guiding principles when we were designing the Dash study. It did have to include meat because that's what the general population was consuming. Right. That's great. Mm -hmm. I think you know. Let's dive in a little bit more into the Dash because you know it discourages saturated fat and fatty meats and full fat dairy and tropical oils, which you know people seem to think that coconut oil is this miraculous oil they should eat, mm. um, as well as discouraging sugar sweetened beverages and sweets. So there are a lot of foods that are not recommended, and yet it continues to have this loyal following and. From your opinions, do you think that capping the sodium at 2,300 milligrams per day is in reality what people are doing when they follow the DASH diet? I mean, the original DASH diet was not a, a low-sodium diet. It, I mean, we right. made it with so, a sodium level that was similar to what the average was in the U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, because we, we wanted to look at things piece by piece. So we're looking at the dietary pattern, which was the DASH pattern you know, inspired by vegetarian diets, but not vegetarian. And then secondarily, later rather, we looked at the combination of low sodium and the DASH diet to see if they were additive, which they were in a tremendous way. So you found it, can, despite maintaining an about American average of sodium, a independent from sodium blood pressure reduction from the eating pattern of DASH, a plant predominant uh, at least in the origins of it, you know, low fat, not extremely low fat, but lower fat, particularly low saturated fat, high fiber, and independent of, of sodium, which was essentially around, I think it was 3,000 or something, close to the American average, there was a blood pressure reduction. Is that a fair statement? That's very accurate. In fact, I mean, one of the tenets of, again, the principles of, of designing the what it was called actually combination diet in the in the manuscript, but uh, what is now called the term the dash diet, it was to it was to hold sodium constant so that you know if there was a blood pressure lowering effect, it wouldn't be attributed to sodium. We also held weight constant um, so for the same reason because we didn't want to have a confounding effect of weight and then have confusion about whether it was weight loss or was the dietary pattern. Um, so those were held constant and. The people who enrolled did not consume a lot of alcohol, so it was 
uh, for the most part, a non-alcohol consuming population. And, and typical of most Americans, they were sedentary by description. So all of the major determinants of blood pressure that we knew in, in the early 1990s were either controlled by us or were at levels that were stable. Um, and so it was a, it was a test of, of diet, really diet quality with the exception of sodium. Um, so, and that was the, um, you know, the, 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 the premise for, uh, for the design of the DASH study. And then, then Frank took the lead in designing the, um, uh, the DASH sodium trial, which was, you know, to test the, the, um, the, uh, the, the joint effects of, of DASH and sodium, and each alone as well. And that standard was the standard DASH uh, with the 3,000 or so milligrams, and then a 2,300, and then a 1,500? I think was there, was that the stratification? Yeah, yeah it's a, it was, you know, three different levels, low, medium, and, and high, and high was actually average. So, you know, one of the things about the DASH study that I look, when I look back at it, is that there were a lot, I mean, what people, what many people in the United States eat is actually much higher than what we um, tested in DASH. Um, and that we probably would have seen even a greater contrast between the higher and the lower if you actually had, I'll call it an anti-control or negative control with, with higher levels of sodium. I find it fascinating that people are are really following the the advice, and I you know I sure hope that they're scaling back on the ultra processed food that we seem to be obsessed with in this country. But Dr. Sachs, you published a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine about the Dash sodium diet, and you emphasized that if you optimize your diet quality and you include the sodium reduction, that you can see blood pressure changes in just four weeks. Can you talk about that? Oh, yeah. It actually doesn't take too long before improvement in the diet lowers blood pressure. I mean, we can see an effect at one week or two weeks. Um, wow. And the full effect, probably a full effect, probably, at a, you know, four to six weeks. And people getting off medications? Oh, definitely. I mean, the, the dash, the, the effect of dash and, and dash sodium was just just incredibly incredibly strong in that I think some people that should probably start tapering their medicines carefully um, because they don't they won't need that amount of blood uh, that low blood pressure so do you have any tips in terms of how does one determine if they're at that right sodium cap per day that's really tricky <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, that uh, it's measuring sodium has bedeviled uh, not just the, 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 the lay community, but also researchers. Um, and uh, spent, frankly, I spent a lot of time on this issue. And, and the, the gold standard is not obtainable in, by the general population, not even in clinical practice. It's getting multiple 24-hour urines to understand what, um, what an individual is consuming. And you could do 24-hour um, dietary recalls, but again, that is also not very practical. Um, it, but in some respects, sodium is, is similar to many aspects of diet where it is difficult to estimate uh, actual intake of, of single nutrients. We can't do for certain products. I mean, like people actually can, although they might not report accurately how much soda they drink, you know, because you can count cans or bottles. But 
individual nutrients are really tough for people to, yes. to estimate. And I, I think that's a ubiquitous problem and more so for sodium than perhaps other uh, nutrients because it's in so many products that mm -hmm. uh, people consume. It's absolutely true. Yeah. Maybe a quick comment. We had uh, Dr. Robin McKinnon from the FDA leading the, the voluntary sodium reduction uh, campaign. Any comments regarding how important, at least on a population level, we know there are individuals very highly motivated, which is great, that can drop sodium with significant vigilance, and even then it's a challenge. <laughs> but uh, your thoughts regarding the, the need to slowly, but hopefully surely, kind of tweak down the, the supply in the, in the U.S. food supply in order to get to anything close to a generalizable application of the, at least the low sodium component of uh, what uh, DASH is now <laughs> considered. Now, I mean, it originally wasn't low sodium, but now people align the thought of DASH. It's kind of branded as a, a healthy, lower sodium approach. Any thoughts regarding? That's a big step forward in providing guidance to the food industry. Now, the food industry can reduce the sodium content of what they sell. I mean, and that people get used to a lower sodium level very fast. I mean, it takes just a few days of a low-sodium diet, and people don't even know their, their diet is low in sodium. And if you increase the sodium, then, they, then it tastes too salty to them. Um, now, some food companies have already been lowering the sodium in foods, and that just needs to be progressed more and more. So, like, you know, in a few years, the, uh, uh, you know, the progress by the food industry will be, will be assessed, and then see what, what additional is needed, more than one gram Per day reduction. And, you know, you just sort of look at, uh, get used to lo looking at labels and um, find the things that have the lowest sodium, uh, the lowest sodium level. Like, for example, potato chips. I mean, I'm not advocating them as a, health, as a particularly healthy food, but they're traditionally full of salt, but they don't have to be. And, uh, and there are pl plenty of potato chips that are actually brands that are are low in sodium, quite low. Um, so, I mean, being realistic, I think people who like to eat, who enjoy potato chips will enjoy it just as well with, uh, with low sodium. And there are many other examples like this as well. Yeah. Well, and I think it's important to point out that most of the sodium that we get in our diets is not coming from the salt shaker, but it's coming from those processed foods and the foods that you have in your pantry. So simple things like rinsing your can of beans can substantially lower the sodium. You can buy all kinds of no-added salt. So it's out there. It's not really necessarily at the table where you're salting things, but one tip that seems to work really well is if you are going to add the salt in cooking, add it at the end where you really get the flavor of it as opposed to in the water or where it might be a little bit lost to your palate. Yeah, the sodium on top of, of products actually can you know, lead to a really pronounced uh, um, taste of salt. In fact, when we were design implementing the DASH trial, I remember some people were complaining that, uh, that there was so much salt like on a potato salad and as soon as they you know included it in the um, the product it was um, it was it was invisible you know to the people so you're, you're spot on with your description of of trying to um, you know if at the very end just a little bit uh, makes sense yeah the effect of uh, you know salt on top of a potato chip which has uh, excuse me pretzels which has the same sodium as a same ounce of Cheerios, but since the sodium's all ground into the center of that burnt little O, you don't really taste it the same as you do with the crystals on top of the uh, pretzel. But what the what 
the basics of, of DASH, though, is really rooted in, in a plant predominant, you know, whole fruits, vegetables, legumes, uh, obviously, you know, uh, uh, dairy probably maybe more in the form of, of yogurts and 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 uh, lower fat uh, milks than cheese. Maybe you might want to help help us differentiate dairy because you say dairy and there's one end uh, calorie and sodium dense cheeses versus a yogurt, and they're actually two different animals. No pun intended. <laughs> and then maybe we can uh, from there that basis transition to the discussion about OmniHeart. But first and foremost, what are the predominant foods of a the predominant, right? We know there's always a little room uh, for discretion, but the predominant foods of a DASH eating plan. It's an award-winning approach. Well, there we, we have actually developed some shorthand. Uh, and, and interestingly, because it was a nutrient-based approach when we designed the diets, we actually didn't have that shorthand when we um, were implementing the study. But as soon as we hit the translation phase, we, ha- we had to come up with it. And and the shorthand, the very shorthand was the diet rich in uh, fruits, vegetables, and low-fat dairy and reduced in uh, saturated fat, fat, and cholesterol. Now, that was what we, we did in, um, uh, I think, that the uh, when, when we published our paper. And then I think, uh, you know, Frank, Frank, myself, others, you know, developed a, a longer hand version of that, which incl- which which basically has three categories. It was sort of the DASH diet emphasis this, um, that's one category. A second category is includes this, and a third category is is um, is is what it's reduced in. And so it's expanded a bit. Still tries to focus mostly on on food. So it says yes, so, you know, it emphasizes fruits, vegetables, and low fat dairy. Um, but it does include uh, uh, nuts, you know, fish, uh, and is uh, uh, and and is reduced in several things you mentioned uh, earlier. Um, not just saturated fat, which is probably the only sort of nutrient we use, but it's reduced in in sugar sweetened beverages uh, uh, and uh, and some other products as well. But uh, yeah. Um, Get, could I go back to that the 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 the, uh, the dairy issue? Absolutely. You know when I when I look back at that, the reason we did that was that there was this uh, body of evidence suggesting that higher calcium intakes might be a, might might reduce blood pressure. The the data was you know based on supplements. Um, in designing the Dash study, we said, well, what are all of the possible factors that might lower blood pressure. And calcium was one of those. And so at that point, we decided, well, we have to, only way we're gonna get calcium up in the diet is through dairy. And if we're going to you know, include dairy, it has to be low fat dairy. So it would be milk and yogurt type products. But in the end, you know, I do wonder whether we needed to have higher calcium in the diet and whether our target, which was 1,200 milligrams, was really too high, and we could have gotten as much as, you know, bang for the buck with a with a lower amount and potentially non-dairy products. And part of the reason I say this is that almost as soon as Dash was published, there was this campaign by the dairy industry that says dairy made the difference in Dash. Um, I tried to find, you know, some of the. Um, uh, promotion materials, but like they like picture of Donna Shalala with a mustache oh, and these other very high-profile people, who I think were you know at that point uh, you know thinking they were doing the right thing, but I think they were also promoting an industry and, and a misleading message because 
we really don't know any specific nutrient that that could you know by itself um, you know caused or contributed it was it was you know several foods and nutrients and the only one you can really sort of sort of focus on is really I would say fruits vegetables which were tested in a third diet that we don't really talk about that much it was called the fruits and vegetables diet and uh, that was you know led to higher potassium and fiber and, and some magnesium too but that that hasn't really panned out as much so I think you know the only you know food that really I think contributed were this this you know the group of you know fruits and vegetables and dairy you know it was included but in retrospect I'm not sure we should have you know had so, such an emphasis well, can we talk a little bit about a low-fat diet? Because I think most scientists and health experts agree that a low-fat diet is not the ideal approach, especially when you replace those fats with the sugary beverages and refined grains. So, Frank, can you take this one? And what is the relationship between sugary beverages and refined grains and heart health? You know, to reduce those kinds of foods, I think, is, is very healthy. And... Uh, Actually, a general reduction in carbohydrate, replace it with unsaturated fats and protein from healthy sources, like mostly vegetable sources. We tested that in a study called OmniHeart, which Larry led. And what was interesting is that if you kind of make the diet a little less uh, carbohydrate-rich, the health-promoting effects got a little better. I mean, not that we really needed better results from the DASH diet, it's just that we wanted to see if a lower carbohydrate version of DASH would be, you know, would be superior. And it was to a small, a small but real extent. And I think this main benefit is that people, people can follow a, a lower carbohydrate diet, not a low carbohydrate diet, not a ketogenic diet, but just a, um, something closer to what is average in the U.S., which is not a high carbohydrate diet. So if people follow a low carbohydrate diet, they would lower, um, they would do fine. They don't have to get, you know, they don't have to really focus on carbohydrate foods. Well, let's talk specifically about which carbohydrates we're talking about because fruits and vegetables are carbs. We certainly don't want to eliminate those. So we're really talking about not the healthy whole grain carbs, but really refined carbs and processed carbohydrates, right? And sugary beverages and treats. Yeah, but I, I think the one thing that, uh, that to point out about Omnicarb is it didn't have what I'll call the typical American or controlled diet. It compared three healthy versions of the DASH diet. Um, so even in the carbohydrate-rich version of the DASH diet, we really didn't serve, you know, uh, sugar-sweetened beverages as part of it. It was, you know, it was it was more, you know, bread-type products that, you know, for the most part, and cereals that would raise the carbohydrate to, to the level that we had in that particular diet. And then we just replaced that with, with uh, in one diet with uh, unsaturated fat and the other diet with a, uh, uh, higher protein. Let me, uh, if I can, uh, I think we just mentioned Omnicarb. We'll get to that. We're talking about the Omni Heart Trial, a variation of the standard DASH yeah. and compared to other approaches where there was a slight reduction, about 10% uh, um, right. when it comes for, to carbs, and then adding it to un, 
saturated fats, or protein. So standard DASH, about 15% protein, about 60%, less lower, less process, more of the less refined types of carbohydrate, and then 25% fat. So not really very low fat, but low fat versus two other groups where they, you shaved about 10% off that carbohydrate from 60 down to 50% and took the 10% and either put it in protein or unsaturated fats. And to be clear to everyone, I think the proteins were largely focused on, I think the legumes were kind of trying to be, uh, or there was a goal of trying to make half of that come from legumes. Maybe I'm wrong, straighten me out. Otherwise, maybe forms of uh, fish, uh, chicken breast, maybe some cholesterol-free egg white uh, type products. But when we say protein, it wasn't (laughs) fatty porterhouse. Can you define a little bit more what the proteins were in that OmniHeart higher protein, if you will, arm? You just described it accurately. <laughs> uh, it was not, you know, fatty products. It was, you know, desirable forms of protein. Uh, plant protein was a. When you think about the the incremental uh, 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 protein added in the high protein diet, about half of it came from plant plant based uh, foods, and the other half came from uh, meat. And the meat was um, was was commonly chicken. Um, I'm not, I don't recall specifically whether we had any pork, uh, but, but it was not, you know, we still had, um, you know, low saturated fat, less than 7% in all three diets. And then for the higher fat arm, what were the, were they nuts and seeds and, and low saturated fat oils from safflower to olive to what was, tell us a little bit about the, the fat sources that you traded some carbs for in the, uh, modestly higher fat arm of OmniHeart. Yeah, that, it's, it's interesting that, um, you know, when I look at the, um, at what we, when, when I, as I recall what we did, it was, it was really monounsaturated fats that we increased. So it was quite a bit of olive oil actually that was okay. added to the diet. You know, and I look back, you know, you know, an outstanding issue was polyunsaturated fats and whether we should have had more of a mix, but, uh, of, well, the the incremental uh, 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 the incremental uh, increase in fat um, should have been perhaps you know a combination of mono and poly, but for the most part we did we increased with mono and saturated fat in uh, in the higher fat diet and on the heart. I have one one question, and it might have to be towards Frank, but uh, Larry, either one of you, because I remember a quote from a magazine published by the Center for Science and the Public Interest called Nutrition Action in which, Frank, you mentioned that in the higher protein arm, there were a number of individuals that came back um, because it was supposed to be a weight-neutral study, but they spontaneously weren't finishing their food. They were at risk of losing some weight due to this potential satiety effect of maybe the fiber and protein from the legumes or, or whatever. Uh, and we saw that triglyceride cut across the board. Any comments on, on that? And the irony from my end as a clinician was like, just let them lose weight. Now, I realize you're, you're not supposed to allow that to happen. It's supposed to be weight neutral. But what, did you, what were you feeling when you were kind of stuck with these people are coming in satiated and we're having to kind of encourage them to finish their food when they spontaneously might not want to? Maybe we would just say Eureka. But, of course, that would uh, you know, lose the, the design of the study. Any comments on that? Yes, because we emphasize vegetable protein right. in the high-protein OmniHeart diet. It was very bulky. So, I mean, all those beans, that uh, was difficult for the participants, for some participants anyway. But um, all in all, we just titrated the amount of food given to, given to our participants so that they re, uh, remain weight-stable. Um, I think, though, to... to to me, to me, I felt that uh, 
that that these high carbo I mean, I'm sorry, these high protein diets are somewhat difficult to follow, and maybe even more so if they're mostly from beans and other sources of vegetable protein. Um, so I, I, in the end, I think that we we would recommend uh, that you know if we start with a dash diet, we reduce ten percent of carbohydrate and we replace it with a combination of unsaturated oils. Um, or, uh, or higher protein foods. And certainly legumes, uh, we can love those. Is that uh, fair to say that there's a good, that bulk you're talking about might help people get full on less calories, at least by some observations of what happened in Omnicarb, maybe? Yeah, maybe. I think that's a reasonable idea. One thing that we did in Omnicarb, and we didn't do this in other studies because uh, satiety wasn't as much of a of a uh, sort of a hypothesis guiding, you know, dietary patterns or study. We actually did get measures of satiety, um, and it affirmed what what you just said, which is that people felt more full when they were eating the protein diet compared to the other two uh, two diets. Um, and anecdotally, and and maybe Frank, you, I'm not sure you you had the same impression. I I would, you know, meet the participants. Uh, you know, once a week just to check in uh, on them. And they, they they found the protein diet to be the more difficult of the three diet, most difficult of the three diets in terms of uh, uh, consuming. Um, and I don't recall the specific reasons, but it might be just what we discussed, which is they felt full, you know, before. Um, and, but it, I think, you know, Frank might have mentioned, sorry, I think higher protein diets tend to be very challenging to people. And our increase was modest. It was 10% going from 15 to 25%. It wasn't going up to these astronomical levels that right. are, have been recommended in some fad diets. Exactly. So. A very practical amount. You know, the fashions vary from year to year about nutrition. And right now we hear some advocates of, of a very low-carbohydrate ketogenic diet. But, you know, that's an extreme diet, and people have difficulty following it. And actually, in controlled trials where they reported side effects, I mean, there are quite a number of side effects, and that led people to uh, drop out. There are more dropouts in studies of the ketogenic diet or Atkins, traditional Atkins diet. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think the work that you both have done along with your colleagues has just been remarkable and has led to incredible and better understanding of the importance of a healthy diet, that it's the best weapon against chronic disease. And we know it's about vegetables and fruits and whole grains and fish, legumes, nuts, healthy fats. But is there a gold standard? Is it the DASH? Is it the Mediterranean? Is it the flexitarian? Are they all outstanding diets that whatever you can stick to and, and however you can move the needle against the sad American diet, which is one end of the spectrum, Way out there. and move it closer to eating more of the foods that we know, you know, provide that fiber, provide the, the necessary nutrients, give us more potassium, calcium in our diets. So I'd love for you each to opine on what you think the gold standard is. It's really interesting that you bring this up. Uh, so a few months ago, uh, Alice uh, Lichtenstein uh, and I sort of co-chaired this um, this uh, scientific statement. And, and who uh, is Alice, real quick? Alice Lichtenstein. She is uh, a professor of uh, nutrition at Tufts. We know. We just want to make sure and, uh, everyone else does. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> we know Alice. Yeah, I know. Alice huh. should be on this program as well. Uh, but anyway, so yeah, we, 
you know, it was an update from the 2006 guidelines. Um, but what we took was a different tack. We focused on dietary patterns. But it was interesting is that we really did not sort of say, okay, here's Mediterranean, here's a page, and here's, you know, the DASH diet, and here's a page to describe it, vegetarian. And what we decided to do was just describe attributes of diets that are healthy, um, which I think is the way to go, quite frankly. And, um, you know, I'm, I'd be interested in what Frank has to say, but, you know, we we were obviously, you know, keenly involved with uh, with development of DASH and now it's uh, translation, promulgation. But, but I probably eat some sort of hybrid, quite frankly. Um, uh, of uh, of of these diets, I would call mine a sort of a minimal meat diet that actually includes fish in some ways, like Mediterranean. But you know, Mediterranean also didn't you know emphasize these potassium rich foods that I think probably have a beneficial effect on blood pressure. So I actually am not going to say dash surprisingly, and I'm not going to say Mediterranean. Um, I just think I, I would just aim for the the attributes that we we presented in the in the recent uh, AHA statement and uh, and and not give you what you asked for. <laughs> no, <laughs> I love your answer. I love it. I think, I think he sounds like a flexitarian. Shh, don't I think so too. Anyway, yes, Frank. <laughs> I don't, How about I don't. you, <laughs> Frank? I'd love your answer. Yeah. Well, I think I mean the breakthrough with with DASH and subsequent studies of where was the emphasis on dietary patterns. We were studying dietary patterns. We're not studying potassium or not studying, you know, calcium or something like that. They had been studied and weren't really that effective. So, you know, low, I mean, high calcium or high potassium, they, they weren't so effective. So we have, we have, we feel that dietary patterns in a parallel, like DASH, in a parallel a line of research is Mediterranean diets. And, you know, those are, are very beneficial as well. And they're actually different kinds of Mediterranean diets too. Mediterranean diets are quite different from one another, all depending on the locales. For example, in southern Italy, in the inland region, they, um, they eat a, a, a lot of fava beans. Fava beans, in fact, is the staple in that part of Italy. So that's the traditional Mediterranean diet in inland regions of southern Italy, whereas in the coastal regions, they eat lots of fish. Right. So, you know, this brings up a very good opportunity to wind up with a question regarding Omnicarb. This question has vexed people in terms of glycemic index and so on, et cetera. And I think, and I could be wrong, and you're going to straighten me out, that Omnicarb gave us a very good idea and made life simpler. Because if I'm not mistaken, it was essentially a healthy eating pattern, maybe more along the lines of standard DASH, maybe you know, on the, quote, higher carb side, but looked at healthy sources of food, higher versus lower glycemic index. Now, this is probably completely wrong, but for the general public and my patients, I said, look, it's the white potato study versus the sweet potato study, but the white potato has got the, it's got the skin on it and it's baked. It's not, you know, it's not salted and fried with a bunch of et cetera, et cetera. But when looking at high glycemic versus low glycemic, essentially from the ground type of carbs, uh, not confusing jelly beans with garbanzo beans, in other words, because they're both carbs, air quote, that we didn't really find in these insulin resistant patients or subjects that there was any particular advantage, as long as the quality of what you're eating was high, that there wasn't any particular advantage to going low versus high glycemic. This is not to compare, again, jelly beans, but we're talking about high quality eating, high versus low glycemic index, 
not much difference. And if anything, maybe a slightly weirdly ironic slight favorability to the high glycemic, which I kind of write off as chance, but you guys can comment from here. I'll just leave it at that. I think you just hit it perfectly. I, I think there's very little that I would that I would add, Tom. I mean, working with a glycemic index is actually on a practical level really quite difficult. For example, the the more you chew your a mouthful of food, the higher the glycemic index. Or if you freeze food, it changes the glycemic index. It was a difficult study to conduct, and in the end, we felt there really was nothing to favor using glycemic index as a guide to uh, carbohydrate-rich foods. I totally agree. I, this was such a challenge. I mean, when we, were, when we were implementing the study, our staff couldn't freeze food you know, for the uh, low glycemic index diet, so they had to make it every day. It was, you know, in many ways, I was happy with the result because it, it simplified uh, you know, messaging um, to, to, to you know, the general population and, and also those who, you know, who are you know, in need of even greater uh, you know, dietary change because of cardiometabolic disease. Uh, you know, we can get what we need out of our existing approach uh, with the DASH diet and not have to tweak it in ways that make life hard for people. Boom. Kathleen, I thought that was great, by the way. Kathleen, any, uh, any final uh, question? Oh, no, I, I, it's been a great conversation. Thank you both so much for being here with us. And I think we just want our listeners to understand that any kind of um, small steps that you can take towards these gold standard diets, however you might describe them, is really going to be in your best interest to help reduce your blood pressure, lose weight, just become healthier and reduce your risk for chronic diseases. Some of my thoughts, I, th I love the legumes. I think the legume story came out. We know the basis of fruits and vegetables. Uh, I, I love the practicality, and I just thank you both because I think this is the first time we've had on recording you know, Har Harvard's Dr. Frank Sachs and, and Johns Hopkins' uh, Dr. Larry Apple. Uh, we cannot thank you enough for your contribution to nutritional science and lifestyle science. Please keep up the great work. It's been an honor to have you here with Kathleen and I on the True Health Reveal podcast. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks so much. All right, Kathleen, that was, uh, that was so cool. I mean, uh, no matter what uh, you think about uh, style and this and that and the other thing, these are two powerhouses of nutrition and lifestyle metabolic health never before brought together on any uh, interview recorded, and we brought it to them first. What did you think of that? Oh, I, I thought they were amazing, and they've just offered so much insight. I mean, their work has been so uh, prolific and has led us to a, a, such a good understanding. I mean, one of the things that I walked away with that I didn't know today was how quickly you could lower your blood pressure. Yeah. Now, I don't have high blood pressure. I'm not on medication. But how quickly you can get off that medication and, and be on your way to having maybe one fewer pill that you take or no pills at all by um, following a DASH diet. Mm -hmm. and, and then their humbleness in saying, look, you know, these are, I think your point was well taken. Your question was, don't really Mediterranean and Flexitarian and DASH all kind of Venn diagram overlap a lot. And, and you know, Definitely. And, and they were humble enough to say, or I think well, well, it was at least one of them. I think maybe it was Larry. Say, you know, we're not necessarily pushing. Dad, even though he's the the promulgator of it, he just wants to get people to eat healthier, and it's the pattern that matters. And Dash is just another great resource, maybe with a little added emphasis on the sodium thing. Thank you for pointing out that you can cook without it and add a little sprinkle on the top and get all the flavor. I know, right? I know. It really there's there's just a foundation of what is a healthy diet, 
And, you know, of course, in addition to lifestyles that include exercise and avoiding tobacco, that you really have the power is on your plate and it's in your hands. And so we're bringing you the experts that can really help you make those steps towards a healthier lifestyle. Absolutely. And for those of you that like the content that Kathleen and I are bringing to you through the True Health Reveal podcast, please, please consider a donation to our nonprofit, the True Health Initiative. You just go to truehealthinitiative.org. There you can donate. You can also find the podcast there as well. You'll see a podcast button, and we really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the True Health Revealed podcast. We appreciate your time and hope you'll join us again. For more information on today's episode and to subscribe to future podcasts, please visit truehealthinitiative.org. And to help us continue the fight against fake facts, please consider donating to our nonprofit True Health Initiative.